Someone close to me who I cared about and thought that I knew very well committed a sex crime on a child. And um, it really, it turned my world upside down to find out that, that somebody that I thought I knew really well was capable of, of an action that could cause so much harm. Lisa Chatham is a faculty member in the psychology and yoga studies department at Naropa University and a psychotherapist in private practice in Boulder, Colorado. For over 10 years, she has worked with adults, couples, and groups on a wide range of issues, including anxiety and depression, sexuality and identity, failure to launch, intimacy and autonomy in relationships, and psycho-spiritual well-being. One of the biggest reasons that I've seen is lack of education. A lot of these crimes could easily be prevented. Families talking about sexuality in the home and educating their children about what consent looks like. She specializes in family systems, forensic psychology, and in the treatment and assessment of men who have been convicted of a sex crime. You know, you can't unfuck somebody. <laughs> like, let's think about like how important this event could be and how dangerous it could be. Before we begin today's episode, I would really appreciate a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening to this on. This helps to get the message out there to men and therefore encourage and inspire them to level up their life. So without further ado, this is the Modern Warrior Podcast. I am your host, Gavin Meenan. Thank you for tuning in. So Lisa, can you tell me about a difficult experience in your life, a struggle in your life, a painful experience in your life, which ultimately became a catalyst for positive growth and progress in your life? Yes, I've had quite a few of those, but the one that has specifically shaped my career and how I show up um, in my professional work was one was an experience that occurred in the beginning. I was um, in my undergrad psychology and someone close to me who I cared about and thought that I knew very well committed a sex crime on a child. And um, it really, it turned my world upside down to find out that that somebody that I thought I knew really well was capable of, of an action that could cause so much harm. And because I'm naturally curious about human nature, you know, why, like, that's why I went into psychology. Why do people do the things that they do? Um, I started to do a ton of research. Was everything I thought about this man wrong? Did I miss all the warning signs? You know, does this mean that, um, you know, this person is a terrible person who needs to be isolated from society? You know, what does this mean? And as I started to research sex crimes, I found out that everything I thought I knew about sex crimes was wrong and had been informed by, um, by the news and media and high profile sex crime, you know, um, information. And, and that I didn't know about um, what it was really like 
out in that world. And I became super intrigued by it. Um, you know, um, all of us are surrounded by sex crimes. They're everywhere. They're happening, whether or not they're reported, they're very close to home. And we sort of have this misconception that, you know, um, it's the stranger danger thing, you know, it's out there, but, but these, these crimes are actually happening really close to us. They're in our families, they're in our churches, they're, you know, in our schools. And so I became very passionate about prevention. I focused um, my education on forensics, and now I'm a therapist who provides often specific treatment to men who've been convicted of sex crimes. Mm-hmm. What was the one thing that you discovered there through your research that became the defining moment in terms of, oh, hang on, this is not all that I thought it was. You say that much of what you knew about these sex crimes were wrong. Mm-hmm. What was what was the, if this is even a word, what was the wrongest thing that you found? <laughs> that, that, I like it. Yes. That, um, that, the that, wrongest thing that I had programmed in my mind, I would say is that what I believed was that if a man had committed a sexual offense, that he would continue to commit sexual offenses for the rest of his life. And that, you know, we needed to keep these people far away from, um, you know, our wives and children. (laughs) That was sort of the wrongest thing that I had. Um, When the truth is that recidivism rates, you know, recidivism meaning the likeliness that a person is going to commit another crime of the same nature, um, are really low for men convicted of sex crimes. So that was a big surprise. That means that a man can have an offense and never have another offense again, but that's actually more likely than it being the other way. Is this subjective on the experience, such as if it was a sex crime against a woman versus a sex crime against a child? That's a really good question. Um, in my experience, no. And in terms of research, um, I don't think so. I don't think so. But it does... Um, you know, a lot of the studies kind of like lump everything together, but you're right. It is, it is very different. Um, they're two different, they're two very different crimes, even though oftentimes they're treated the same. Okay. So as much as you found out the wrongest thing that yeah. we, that you were wrong about, about, yeah. about sex crimes, and what we all know about sex crimes, did you find out the why or at least one or two of the strongest and most prevalent whys as to why this happens with these men? Um, You know, there's not a lot of whys because, you know, these crimes are actually a lot that like, there's just such a broad spectrum of reasons and motivating factors. Um, I would say one of the biggest reasons that I've seen is lack of education. A lot of these crimes could easily be prevented. 
um, education around consent, for example, or, you know, families talking about sexuality in the home and educating their children about what consent looks like and, you know, what kind of dynamics need to be present for a positive sexual experience. But people really tend to avoid those conversations, especially in families. Um, yeah, so my biggest why in my mind is always because America is so weird about sex. Why is that? Well, lots of places I think are weird about sex, but I'm living in America, so that's where I'm experiencing it firsthand. I mean, I think the shame, the pur- the puritanical influence that, that creates shame has left like a, a genetic imprint in our system. So even just talking about sex for a lot of people is really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And then that, you know, shuts down information being shared. Um, I have a lot of clients who, um, you know, they're young and, you know, they're at a party and everybody's drinking and they think, you know, the woman's totally into them. And then she passes out drunk in their bed and, and they touch her thinking that she was all for it. Now that's something that could have been prevented by, you know, some solid education. Mm-hmm. From some, both perspectives from, for the man and the woman. I think so. I mean, I, I do, I do think that um, recognizing I know as a mother of daughters, I certainly provide a lot of information to my girls about how to be safe, you know, when they're choosing to party or whatever they do or spend time with, you know, the opposite sex. And um, I have sons as well. And I've, you know, provided them with just as much information. Mm-hmm. You know. And that's, that's where it needs to be in is from the family home is from the parents. Yeah, I believe, I believe that's a great place to start. I mean, I mean, here's what you need to consider. Um, I don't actually know exactly what it's like in Ireland, um, but I'm assuming it's not too different, but you know, if, if it's more socially acceptable for your children to witness a toxic conflict than it is for your children to overhear you making love or accidentally walk in the room when you're having sex. Something is wrong. We are way off base. Mm. That's very much (laughs) it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, uh, couples will go to such great lengths to make sure their kids don't see them having sex. And yet, you know, these nasty arguments in front of their children. And that's just has always, you know, been so perplexing to me. It just seems like we are so far off base when it comes to sexuality and, you know, creating more of like um, a sex positive environment. But I think we just get so uncomfortable. I mean, people just get uncomfortable, even if you're just talking about regular sex. Yeah. Do you believe that the mold has been broken? Or is there still a massive struggle in terms of this generation of parents having these conversations with their children? Um, I think we're starting to see some of some of that being broken. 
But I think that we've still got like generations and generations to kind of begin to like flesh that out. No, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens, but I also don't think I'm going to see everything I want to see in my lifetime. You don't, but you I, think, you think it's I think we're headed in the right direction. Yeah. Well, it's about parents today leading the way, ultimately, even if we bring them a little bit further. Yep. And then they'll take their children further because it's going to be, you know, less weird for them. Um, you know, because a lot of us parents grew up in really religious homes and that's, you know, religion is changing shape. And did you grow up in a religious home? I grew up in a Catholic home. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. My father is a minister. So, um, <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of taboo topics in, in my home. And, you know, um, there were just things that we didn't talk about. And so then there was feelings that you didn't know how to work with and, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, have I, answered questions. Yeah, for sure. In my own upbringing, I, there, there was a lot of shame around sex, and it was just a, a functional thing or whatever, not something to be enjoyed and something to be hidden away. And <clears throat> I then hid my sexual desires away. You know, I, I, for want of a better word, developed a porn addiction. So that became my outlet for my underlying suppressed sexual desires because I felt too ashamed to express it with with a woman or in in a situation. So, or even to talk about it with my parents or with peers or with older people to help me understand what was really going on. So in that dynamic, do you you see what the the men that you work with, the men that men that you help that porn has been a, a huge influence in, in their behaviors and actions too? I have not. Um, and the research actually does not um, suggest that looking at pornography, any kind of pornography, um, increases your risk for committing a sex crime. Okay. Interesting. That's- yeah. But I do know men who have struggled with porn addiction. And then, you know, from that perspective, it could be problematic. I tend to think that the problem isn't necessarily porn, but how it's being utilized, you know, whether or not it's being talked about, whether or not you're open with your partner about, you know, maybe that you like to look at it or what you like to look at. And that's where I find that porn can become really problematic. And then obviously, if people are feeling like they're not, able to have self-control around it and it's taken over their life, then that's a, you know, then that can be problematic as well. But um, they have done a lot of um, research trying to, to correlate looking at porn with um, sex crimes and it just, they've not been able to, okay. to demonstrate that. That's interesting. Yeah. And. Does, you, but it would make sense that you would think that though. Yeah. It would perhaps. <laughs> give them some ideas maybe or it would it would, sure. in, it would uh, create some kind of misconstrutive behaviors because what you see played out in porn you could then replicate in a in a real life situation you know the you know that you can just approach a woman like this and you can just do this to a woman and you can just get away with it so yeah i mean it could definitely make you a bad lover i can tell you that much hmm. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's fine. In, ter- in terms of bad ideas, you know, replicating what you see in porn probably isn't going to make your um, partner super happy. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I find Gavin that, you know, a lot of people have like fantasies and ideas in their head that they don't actually really want to act out in real life, especially when it comes to sex. And that the ideas are a lot more, you know, juicy, I guess, when they're just a fantasy than when they're they're acted out in real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, too much hassle to act it out, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so the, the work that you do, you help men recover. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. can you give us, obviously, no names, but can you give us maybe one man that you've worked with who was in a pretty bad place due to his conviction and had and has been able to transform his life in a positive way now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody I've worked with was in a pretty bad place. And um, you know, nobody comes to mind in particular. Um, you know, the heart the hardest part, I think, for men convicted of sex crimes is what happens to their life. Because, um, you know, in America, we have the sex offender registry. So they go on the registry. So then some of them lose their jobs. Um, some of them lose their housing because they can't live somewhere as a, you know, registered as an SO. Um, you know, sometimes they've lost their families as a result of what they've done because it's so shameful. Um, you know, so when they come to me, they're, they're pretty broken. Um and they've lost everything. So they're, they're very, you know, um, open to, to change and, and want to make, make a lot of changes in their life. Um, you know, nobody wants their whole life to be characterized by the worst thing they ever did, you know, and some of these men's crimes was like a 32nd event, you know, and, and I don't believe that their life needs to be characterized by that 30 seconds. Um, one mistake yeah 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 so i yeah i've seen um lots of men transform their lives and completely change and have incredible remorse for their actions and pain for how they caused harm and and are really wanting to repair that mm-hmm. what does that look like what does the process look like um, for repair or repair with yourself yeah. Yeah. with yourself yeah well I mean um you know working through that shame is hard because you not only have your own shame but you have like this whole societal stigma that's attached to it so um it's like this constant reminder it's very difficult to get away from um but you know processing your grief, um, the loss of a certain identity that you have about yourself, you know, that you saw yourself in one light. I mean, a lot of people say, I could never do that. I could never do something like that, you know, about a lot of things, but humans are weird, man. You know, like we have a lot of things that can happen in any given moment. And, you can make a decision that is totally out of character for yourself. Um, unfortunately, I think, you know, like as, as a society, we tend to kind of project onto these men who've been convicted of sex crimes and say, oh, you know, there's the bad guy. He's over there. 
you know, but, but we're all pretty capable of making bad choices. Um, and I think that, um, you know, these men are a reminder to me just to always like practice humility and um, stay honest with yourself, stay honest with your friends, like have your, your people, you know, who know when you're, you know, full of shit and aren't afraid to like, say like, what's really going on with you? And how are you and how are you handling that? And I really love what's happening. Um, and I think women tend to be better at that than men. And so I'm loving like how much men's work is being done right now and how men are really learning how to support each other in that way. And I think this is a missing piece because I think, um, sexuality is one of the things that is a lot harder to talk about, you know, like, um, we have these crazy assumptions that like, if we're married, we're never going to be attracted to somebody else or, you know, I, which I love that fantasy. I would, I would love for that to be true, but it's just not. And, you know, in, in reality, we need to, um, address what is really possible and what could really be happening so that we can work with it in a responsible way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's that the men's work is so important because there's things you can speak to men about that. <clears throat> if you do it there, if you do it with the men, it's not going to transfer over to your relation with your woman. And therefore it's not going to disrupt the relationship. And also because you're working on yourself and you're working with these men, you're not bringing that responsibility of her having to look after you or her having to hold an emotional space for you so she can deal with your emotions or help you with your feelings. And therefore this can create, I feel in my own personal opinion can create a lot of friction and, and difficulty within the relationship. And then she feels like she needs to mother you and doesn't become the wife. She becomes your mother, you know? So I feel so yeah. Or, we don't want to be your mother. Yeah. So important for men because as or well, your therapist. Or your therapist. Oh yeah. Yeah. Someone, somebody, somebody that you can trust outside of your relationship. And it, it could be one friend. It could be a mentor. It could be a group of men. It could be a therapist, as you said. But that you're bringing this to them so that they can hold you accountable. Ultimately, I had a, I had a man who was working with me um, over the last few months. And this guy is married. He's got a, he's, he's got a couple of kids and he's been telling me about some fantasies he's been having about um, another woman who's come into his life. I won't, I won't give too much detail away, of course, but, and over the last three or four conversations, he's keep, he's, he's bring, been bringing her up and tells, tells me that, you know what, I, I want to go and I want to be with her. I want to have sex with her. And, I sort of, you know, parked it for a couple of, couple of conversations. Said, okay, you know, this is a, this is a natural feeling. You know, you're married. Things are maybe mundane there. Maybe there's something within her that you're lacking with, within the relationship with your wife. You know, we could bring, this could be, a message. There could be a message here. You can, understand what you're missing, so you can communicate that to your wife. But, this keeps coming up, and I, I've simply told him, and this is the accountability bit, and this is the, this is why. You need men because something like this sentence would probably not come from a woman is on the last conversation with them. I said, okay, you know, you keep talking about this girl, but go, 
go and have sex with her tonight. Go and you know send her a message and away you go. Have sex with her if that's what you really want to do. And he was taken back by that, and he he took a few seconds and said, uh, "Nah, you know what? That no, nah, that wouldn't that wouldn't be a good idea. No, no, that you know I, I don't want I don't want to cheat my wife. I don't want to. I, I don't want to do that. No, that's no." I said, well, there you go. There's your answer. Now you can stop bringing this one up and start to focus on what's really important here, such as your marriage, your wife, and your future over here. And understand that all that is just a fantasy. Mm. So that's so hard hard in the moment to know that. It is, yeah. It is for sure. And and this is something that 99.9% of men, I think, struggle with. It's, It's... if there's anything lacking in the relationship, or if, the, if there's a bad, there's a few bad days with the wife, the missus, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very easy. And it's a lot more easier now to go onto your phone and find an escape or find this fantasy and take you away from your reality. Porn, of course, serves that purpose too, but it, sure. all, it brings me back to, um, to what you're talking about here in terms of their suppressed desires that is not being expressed in a honest way with their partner or with someone else with men, which then can turn nasty as you well know. Yeah. I think sometimes um, one of the more frequent, um, I guess, kind of trying to think psychological dynamics that I see that contribute to a man committing a sex crime is when he is in a marriage where he feels powerless. Mm. And then somehow, you know, all of that, those feelings of powerlessness translate into, you know, some energy to go in and, and commit, you know, a crime and does that make sense? I see you kind of like. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Power, it's, control. It's, he feels mm-hmm. out of control in his life. And mm-hmm. maybe he feels like he can't control his marriage or can't control his wife, which he, he can't control his wife. But he can. He, and, he, and again, he loses touch with himself. He loses control within himself. So he's he's seeking this control. And it's, it's very attractive to be in power, to be in control. And when that's taken away from you, you know, you will mm-hmm. get to find it somewhere else. As much as it creates a sex crime, it, it, it most likely is the creator of affairs and many breakups too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, and I think this is, I think all, all people need to be in the practice of checking in with, with themselves. Am I standing up for myself? Am I advocating for myself in this relationship? Am I accommodating? Cause I don't want to deal with, you know, the conflict. Am I, am I selling out in some way in this dynamic? And I think, you know, some, some people can start to do that in, in such a subtle way um, it, you know, it's like a frog in, in boiling water. And then they wake up one day and they can't find themselves anymore. Um, and they're looking for something to, to feel alive again. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that can create all kinds of problems. So I see that one frequently. Is there a number of strategies or tools that you would strongly recommend boys and men 
to use to reduce the risk of something like a sex crime happening in the future? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, well, I think education on consent and um, how... How is that communicated? Um, how is that communicated? So, I mean, I would start with something like, you know, you can't unfuck somebody. <laughs> like, let's think about like how, you know, but probably with a more PC term. And, you know, let's think about like how important this event could be and how dangerous it could be, you know, if, if things don't go right. And it was important to me just knowing everything, all the work I've done, because I don't just work with adults. I used to work with juvenile offenders. So when my sons were teenagers, even though they were solid dudes, you know, I was like, you know, it's my job as a mother to make sure that they don't commit some kind of sex crime because I've seen this happen, you know, so, so easily it just can happen. And so when I talk about consent, I talk about five elements of consent, um, experience, knowledge, power, self-image and capacity. And that conversation is really juicy, you know, um, and that can, can branch off into lots of different topics. And when you bring things like this up, sometimes it's just important to get people talking about sex, um, and feeling more comfortable about it. Most people have a physical response when you bring up anything sexual, they'll feel like a, a wash of sensation in their genitals or, you know, their chest gets, you know, <laughs> flushed or, you know, whatever, because of this kind of deep shame place. And so people, um, you just need practice, like having these more kind of gritty, edgy conversations and feeling okay in their bodies about it. Like if you feel, you know, a wash of, you know, sexual energy in your genitals, when you're talking about some super taboo topic, that doesn't mean like you're a creep. <laughs> You know, it's a normal response. A lot of people respond that way. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So in terms of the consent topic experience, you know, are we on the same level? Does this person know the, that, that what we're about to do and have the same level of experience? Um, knowledge. Have I provided this person with all the information they need to make an informed decision? Like for example, if you're married and you don't tell that person you're about to sleep with, it's, they really can't consent to having sex with you because they don't have all of the information. And that's not a crime, but you're a jerk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. Um, power? Is there a power dynamic at play? You know, are you the retreat leader? Are you the therapist or the minister? Is there, you know, a coach, some setup? And, you know, obviously with those types of situations, you know, there could be a criminal piece to that. Um, I like to consider self-image as an element of consent. You know, is this person saying yes because they think it will earn them love? You know, interesting. Yeah, um, and then capacity is about um, you know where is that person's state of mind? Are they clear? Have they been drinking? Are they um, you know did they just 
come off of a retreat and they're super expanded in their awareness and way open and need some time to integrate before they could make a decision like that. Or, you know, um, so these types of conversations before, you know, taking off your clothes is a great idea. And I always say, if you're not, if both people are not a hundred percent, if you're like 98%, that's a no, just say no, wait until you're there, wait until you're all the way there. And, you know, and, and wait until your person is all the way there. Yeah. It's difficult though, because again, from a woman, woman's perspective and a man's perspective, there does seem to be an underlying pressure there to sleep with someone because you feel like if you don't, then they may reject you or they may, again, it may be some sort of a, a message to you that they're not interested, not that interested in you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely heard that before, so but the, it seems like there's feel, you know, you know, experience may be, a little bit of confusion or mixed message or perhaps do something that um, is totally, you know, out of alignment with your personal integrity. I mean, it seems like a simple choice to me. Mm. It's simple, but not easy. Yeah. Well, I, I think what I'm talking about would be more prevalent with the younger generation, like teenagers and early 20s which maybe yeah yeah well especially now with the hookup culture yeah but the thing is is everybody's having sex without commitment now so I don't know that anybody you know in terms of the younger generation I don't know that having sex with someone at this point in time means anything or doesn't mean anything Hmm. For the younger people, um, hookup culture, like, uh, you know, um, the, the young people have Tinder or dating apps and they just meet up for sex. We were born in the wrong generation, were we? <laughs> <laughs> wasn't, wasn't that I, don't I don't know. That's got, a, you know, that's got a lot of its own problems. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. That's a but joke. different problems. They definitely sound like better problems. They do, yeah. Well, it wasn't that easy when I was a uh, seventeen, eighteen years of age, right? That's for sure. But there no, is no, I couldn't even find my friends when I was seventeen or eighteen because <laughs> yeah. we didn't have cell phones. You know, now you 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 know where everybody is. You That's can find right. them. You had to write them a letter and wait for them to respond a week later to find out where they went to. Yeah, there's a, uh, yeah, there's. And, that, and that's the difficulty with technology because yes, you can very easily find someone, get hooked or hook up with them. And I had actually on that point, it, it brings a it brings a conversation to the, to my mind where this is quite interesting and it's a little bit off tangent, but it's it it, it is within the same within the same spectrum. <clears throat> I had a conversation with a a client of mine. She was a female client. I, I just met her one day, and we got talking about. Uh, because I post much about masculinity and I recently posted a video about toxic masculinity and, and I, I believe that that label was unfair to a lot of men. And I asked her, okay, what, like, what is it? She was, she's 22, 23. So she's a little bit younger than I was. So I asked her, okay, what is it like for young women 
in, in today's world when you are out there in a nightclub and some man comes up to you and he, he wants to he wants to be with you he wants to whatever he has his intentions with you and you say no like how does that how does that usually play out and her response was that he can't he he can't accept no she'll say no and she will again she went through the the narrative with me that she uses of I feel I feel so honored that you came over here and you, you asked me out, but I'm with my friends tonight I'm, and I'm not interested. I'm sorry, but he wouldn't leave. He would persist and persist and persist. And I, I think ultimately for a lot of men in our generation, but I think maybe more so from the next generation coming up, they struggle with rejection. And this in itself has, has a massive, has a massive um, problem attached to it. But, I also asked her then in terms of, okay, what happens in a, and you, and you talk about the hookup culture. And when you spoke about hookup culture, she's within that culture. So she was telling me about, you know, when the, uh, when COVID was here and they were isolated and you couldn't just go down to the pub or go and meet someone in a cafe and then pursue with whatever else was to come. It was a few messages over Tinder and then you come over to their house. And she was telling me about a couple of experiences, bad experiences, where she would go to someone's house and the vibe was pretty good through the messages. But then she'd get to the house and she'd realize that she didn't want to sleep with this guy. She didn't want to have sex with this guy. And she would try and leave, but that the man would not allow her to leave. And he would again persist just as if the men were persisting in the nightclubs. I was thinking, holy shit, like this is, this is pretty bad. And she would end up sleeping with him. And mm-hmm. I said, well, could you not just escape out the window or at the back door or, or just run away? And she goes, well, my feeling is, and this is, and she told me that this is a feeling amongst most of her female friends is that if she persisted on leaving and continued to persist to leave, that the damage done to her would be much worse than the damage done to her if she just went and slept with him. Mm. Yeah, I've heard that before. I'm just kind of adjusting my screen because I have a skylight that is like <laughs> sending light down to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, yeah, I've, I've, I've heard that sort of thing a lot and I have a lot of clients that are results of tinder hookups gone awry um and I think it's it's a setup it's a setup for sex crimes you don't know the people very well um you know it could be really dangerous um for women of course um yeah and I always just encourage women to take tasers with them everywhere (laughs) You know, yeah, so that's that a good, that's a good tip. if their no isn't being heard, um, they they feel like they have some, yeah. you know, or way to, yeah. to defend themselves in in some way. Or you know, they, another thing they can do is like say to a friend, like I'm going to this person's house. If I if you don't hear from me in 30 minutes, come get me. Hmm you know, or something like that. Um, you know, so you can have these things, but you know, when kids are young and their hormones, especially 
boys. Um, so we're, t- you know, when boys hit about 13, 14 years old, their hormones start fluctuating. Their testosterone starts fluctuating up to 400% in one day. And then developmentally, their frontal lobe starts to become compromised, right? So that part of your brain that goes like, I wonder how this next decision I make is going to impact my life. Like that's offline. (laughs) Um, Until they're 25, isn't it? I think I I do believe so. Yeah. So lots of hormones, bad decision making. I mean, it's just a setup for a disaster. Um, you know, and I've I've wondered if if Tinder could do better to create some consent forms or, you know, something like that, just to to make just to prevent some of these things from from happening. Um you know, I'm really, I really also, you know, want to emphasize the importance of raising strong daughters and um, teaching your daughters how to say no. And it's not enough to say, you know, I want a daughter that knows how to say no, but not to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have to let your kids say no to you. Like the, she needs a place to practice that um, and staying embodied enough to have that no be really strong. You know, we see these two-year-olds, right? Like, uh, do you have kids who have yeah. been around two-year-olds? Two kids. Yeah. Do so you know two-year-olds? They're like, no, yes, I want that. I don't want that. Like they're so, the, that embodied immediacy, it's like right there, right? Like how do we hold on to that? Like give them enough skills to be respectful and, you know, do what they need to do, but not like, totally wash out that sense of embodied knowing, um, you know, and, and I don't think it's just, just parents that eradicate that in women. I think there's like a lot of societal messages that get sent, you know, we have jokes about like resting bitch face and, you know, things like that, that, you know, encourage women to, you know, look sweet and smile and be nice. And, you know, instead of like looking at our daughters and saying, you know what, let me see your don't fuck with me face. Let's practice that. Yeah. I'm going to take that with me. Yeah. I think my, <laughs> my, my daughter has it fairly well nailed though. Yeah. I get that every day. She got that. <laughs> good. Well, and good for you for, you know, making a space where she feels comfortable to, you know, make that face and doesn't, doesn't feel like there's such a threat if she doesn't or that she'll lose love or, of course. you know, and then she beats me up every day because she's practicing karate. So Oh, that's awesome. I've, I've got her well trained. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know what's, I know what's ahead of her. I, I, I'm, I'm, I was a boy and I'm a man, so <laughs> I'm preparing of what's for us yet to come. And uh, in my absence, of course, well, my somewhat absence, she'll be out there on her own for most of it. So um, yep. strong, strong daughters and strong and strong men as well. Yeah. And I was sort of uh, curious as well in terms of, as I mentioned with uh, with the girl I was speaking to, it's it's the it's the man's struggle with hearing no and being rejected. Mm-hmm. What do you believe that is down to, or how can we eradicate that? Or again, with your practice or from your practice, is this something that you feel has provoked a lot of these crimes that men can't say no? Or can't hear can't, no. Can't hear no, or, or or do struggle with rejection. So even if the lady yeah. said no, which I'm sure she would in those sort of situations, the man still pursues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I do not think that any of us um, don't struggle with hearing no. 
so we can, you know, talk about it in terms of sex crimes, or we're going to talk about it more generally, like nobody likes to hear no. So that's one. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people do a lot of things to try to get other people's no to be a yes. And that's almost normalized. Like you can watch the subtle way that people, you know, like, like, for example, um, think about like, you know, uh, like a little kid being asked to hug, you know, their uncle Jerry, do you want to give uncle Jerry a hug? No. Are you sure you don't want to look at uncle Jerry, just give him a hug. You know, like there's a lot of ways that, you know, we just don't accept no. And whether it be about something sexual or something else, I mean, I hate it when people tell me no, like it's, you know, I want to get my way. I want to get what I want. You know, we all do, but in terms of experiencing somebody's no as such a deep um, rejection um, that it it somehow impacts your self-worth in some way, that's attachment work. <laughs> you know, that's how do you repair, you know, whatever early stories happened to you that makes you think that this person telling, you know, somehow makes you less worthy of love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very nicely put. That's exactly where it is, isn't it? I mean, it's hearing those no's or rejections in the past, which ultimately you've internalized as you being a rejection and you not being good enough. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's uh, that's a journey. that's that's quite a journey in itself. I've been there. I've had to do that work. Yeah, and I think any man who is to become strong, resilient, compassionate, loving, caring has to go through that process too of letting go of those attachments and healing those pains of rejection from the past and understanding that that doesn't mean those words don't mean that you're not worthy or that you're inadequate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, partners, couples need to work on this all the time when they have like desire discrepancy, right? Like usually, I mean, it's super rare for like two people in a partnership to have the same um, level of sexual desire. There's always going to be desire discrepancies. So, you know, what does it mean if one person wants sex and the other doesn't? And that's usually, you know, a great opportunity for people to start working with the no, you know, I mean, that's a hard, you know, it's hard to be the person letting the person down who wants the sex. And it's hard to be the person um, you know, being rejected. So yeah, all, all of these things come back to um, how, how much work we do to, um, to establish our sense of worth, our sense of self, our sense of agency and autonomy, you know, and having that be the foundation. And then from there, you know, open-hearted and kind and compassionate and understanding. Well, that's a lovely way to wrap up the episode. Thank you so much, Lisa. And it's been it's been brilliant having you on and and I admire the work you do. It's it's so important. And uh, yeah. thank you for all you do. And if any men listen to this podcast or anyone listening to this podcast does want to reach out to you and communicate or get to know you a bit better or get to know your work a bit better or does need some help, where's the best place to find you at? 
Oh, I my website is Lisa Chatham Psychotherapy. Okay, I will pop that down below in the show notes. And Lisa, thanks again. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Modern Warrior Podcast. If this episode has added value to your life, please share this episode on your social media platforms so that others too can gain the insight, information, and inspiration that they need in order to move forward in their lives. For the time being, stay strong and keep fighting the good fight.